0: This morning, we are going to be looking at the book of Jonah again. The book of Jonah. How many of you have enjoyed Jonah? One of you. The book of Jonah. Uh, I don't know how to say this. The book of Jonah is a weird book. That's fair to say. The book of Jonah is not simply the story we were told in Sunday school. How many of you say, oh, that's for sure after we've been in it for three weeks? It's not. And today it's it's. It only gets better. It, that's what's so exciting about this. It only gets better. I got to shut this off so it doesn't distract you. It only gets better better and today, Lord willing, we will see that. It, it is just fantastic. Let's pick it up in verse 4 and we will Preach then verses five and following down maybe to verse eleven. We'll see. The Bible says the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. Now you remember what that word means, right? That word "hurled" is the same way, same word that is used for the for the uh, uh, mariners to throw out the cargo. It's the same one to throw out Jonah off the out of the boat. Same word. And, and that's what's so interesting about Jonah, is the way he uses grammar and words, it's, it's unbelievable. Things I had never understood and never knew before. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone down below, had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may calm us for, become, become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Now, We've all heard this we've all heard the story. We preach, we can teach it in a lesson, one lesson, we get done with it and we all know it. If that's your attitude going into the text, you are sadly going to be disturbed because there is so much more that can be understood about this text about God and his great mercy. One of the things that maybe we never see before is God adamantly will passionately go after his own children to bring them to the right. Amen? What a great truth that is. And there are many, many more. Verse 5, verse 4, we talked about last week. So, verse 5 is where we're starting this morning. The sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. Why did every man cry to his God? Well, these are polytheists, and they go running to the very own God that they know. And frankly, there are many gods in their minds. There is the God of the sea, the God of the land, the God of the weather, the God of the clouds, the God of lightning, the God, well, we know that one. Who's that? Thor. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But reality is these that's who they went to. That's very similar to Christians today. I have a backache, so I'm gonna go to a what? Okay, some of you say chiropractor, some of you say doctor. Right? Why don't we start by going to prayer? Amen? Now, God has given us doctors. God's given us chiropractors. Certainly, use them. But I think so many times we forget about God. We have all these other things. What do we do about this? What do we do about that? And we we go to anywhere else but to prayer. These men did exactly what they were taught to do. These men were polytheists, and they said, okay, we, we got a, every man cries to whom? Look at the text there. There's an adjective there describing the God they're talking about. And that adjective is His God. So they all had different ones, and they went immediately to them. Well, let me ask you, do we go immediately to God for help in time of need? Do we do that? These are Gentiles. These are unsaved people. These are pagans. And they immediately go to their God. I think so many times when we look and watch what what a devout Muslim do. are, Are Muslims devout and serious in what they do? I think sometimes their seriousness and devoutness puts Christians to absolute shame. This is clear here in the text. And this is why the text is actually here. It's to shame and to, min- uh, to express and to show externally the minimization we have for our God, if you will. Or in this case, Jonah had for his God. He was running away from him. So they, they cried to his own God. And then they got to work. They started throwing the cargo which was in the ship into the sea. Because it was getting so bad. And they had to lighten the the boat up so it would float higher and they wouldn't all perish. They're in dire straits. They're in a world of hurt. They have nowhere to go. And to be honest with you, how many would say, think it would be fair to say in verse 5, these guys were freaking out. And they were. What's Jonah doing? Look at the text. But, and that word is so important. He's giving us this scene so beautifully written. These guys were freaking out. But Jonah. (laughs) But Jonah was what? Jonah is the forefront of this clause in this verse. If you remember, Jonah was told to rise up and call out, and go forth, and it's always up, 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 and he did the exact opposite. How do you remember that? He descended into Job, he descended into the boat, he descended in, well, this is his last, well, we think this is his last dissension. Jonah now descended even farther, and he, it, the text tells us something very interesting. It, it's quite unique. While the ship's crew was freaking out desperately to weather the storm, he was asleep below deck. He had descended, again, downward trend, that's his whole trend in life. He descended, and the text says, into the bowels, that's what the hold is, into the bowels of the ship's hold. Bowels and hold here. This is Jonah's descent into the bowels. This word nearly always connotes, what do you think? The underworld. The grave. In essence, we find this in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. We can see the same word used. And it's talks about the bowels is 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 compared to sheol the holding place of the dead and it's it's a and and this is interesting we'll talk about this lord willing next week it's as if we're watching jonah separate himself from god and by doing so he's getting closer and closer and closer to death but God's going to wake him up. This term that is used here, bowels or, or down into the bowels of the ship, literally is usually used in Scripture to talk about grave and Sheol. This very well could be a foreshadowing of Jonah's, and here's the, what we're going to talk next week, Lord willing, near death or death experience. How many have ever heard a Sunday school teacher talk about the death of Jonah? Has anybody heard that? That Jonah actually died? Nobody's ever heard that before. How many heard that it was a near-death experience? Not even that. So reality, well, let's be honest. Was it a near-death experience? Okay, I mean... God' well, we'll get into that, but reality is if you're an expository preacher that takes the biblical text literally, you could come out understanding, and we'll explain it next week again, but it could have been death and certainly a near death experience for Jonah. he's going to talk about his his wallowing down into the where the weeds are around his neck, and then he, he, he he feels as if he's dying. And frankly, it's very possible that he wants to die. Regardless, that, that's for next week. The final word in this text is, he had lain down or in this clause, not the text, but the clause below into the hold of the ship, the ship's hold. He is hidden in the cargo room below deck. Well, at least he was hidden because now what? <laughs> the cargo is all thrown out, <laughs> and he's laid bare there. He's laid naked. It's very interesting how God passionately goes after his children. Oh, you you want to get on a ship? I'm there. Oh, you you want to you want to flee to cross the world? I am there. You you want to. You want to hide yourself in the cargo of the ship? Well, I will bear you naked because I am there. How many see what God is doing here? This detail of being hidden in the cargo room below underscores Jonah's withdrawal from his calling, his vocation, his command by God to do something. It may also explain why the author describes the disposal of the cargo, not only to lighten the boat up, but then to reveal the the perpetrator of this storm. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Not only are we going to help, we found this guy. We knew he was in here. We'll find out that a little bit earlier later here, but also it reveals him. matter of fact maybe that's why the term fling is used in the text because not only is the cargo not only did God throw the storm fling the storm but the sailors flung the cargo and the sailors eventually are going to flung Jonah all three of them are there And that's the exact same word. I know in your translations it may not, but in Hebrew it is. As discussed in the comments about this, the phrase, the mariner's flinging cargo to the sea, is all grammatical style that is being used by the author, and it is phenomenal what he's trying to express. This next clause here, so we have, but Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship. He'd lain down and fallen sound asleep. How many of you are in the middle of the world's biggest storm that they've ever experienced? The ship is going up 90 feet and splashing down 90 feet. The the sides of the boat have where you're sleeping, where inside have actually broken and there's water spraying in. And you're just sound asleep. How many think something's amiss here? Why is he sound asleep? The term sound asleep is also could be understood as he fell fast asleep. On the one hand, according to Youngblood, and I, I love Youngblood, he uses all the Hebrew words and explains them distinctly. Just, it's wonderful text. The verb fell asleep adds to the growing number of allusions to death and the netherworld. world. already hinted in the bowels when he talks about the bowels of the ship. Now he's fallen fast or sound asleep. It probably or very well could be that this is underscoring Jonah's proximity to death. This impression is reinforcing that is being reinforced here is actually Only Hebrews can understand it because when you're falling fast asleep and descending into hell, those two words have the same motion lettered uh, um, pronunciations. How many know what a, uh, when you, how many are a poet and you know it? So the poet and know it, those are two words that you pick out, right? That's exactly what's being understood here. These words are poetic, to resemble and bring to mind, descend, death, the bowels, sheol, and putting to sleep. Do we use death? Do we use sleep as a metaphor for death? Absolutely. That's one option that might be under, being understood here. Another one is also that in this time in history, Jesus, or God Almighty, talked to the, the prophets sometimes by what? Dreams. That's why Mr. Zarin preached or read from the text that he read on in 1 Samuel chapter 26. Very often, these dreams were God's way of imparting wisdom to man. By the way, that is not the ter- today. We have the Word of God. They were being given the Word of God. There is the difference. Matter of fact, um, sleep was in preparation to receive revelation. Prophets in, of, of ancient Mesopotamia viewed deep sleep as a means of revelation and as evident in the uh, in when you read read what they would call Near Eastern literature, you will see it in there. The Bible attests a similar understanding of deep sleep in Samuel that we read in Genesis and in Job and in Zechariah and other passages of Scripture. Jonah's sleep may therefore anticipate the renewal of his calling that was given in Jonah chapter 3 because frankly, no one's going to fall asleep in that storm. It's just so terrible. Why? God planned this all along. Jonah's sleep and probably renewed command from God is supported by the cry of the mariners. And I love this. Look what the mariners do. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? In other words, what is wrong with you? Frankly, think about the subject that's here. You've got this deep ship. It's filled with cargo and a guy. They've already gone down there and pulled the cargo out, and what's going on? He's sleeping. How in the world does that happen? It's like, I know this for a fact, teenage boys, this is perfectly you (laughs) and me. It's like your mom coming into your bedroom to clean up and take everything out. How's that going to work? Are you going to stay asleep? But yet, on top of that, is the snow or the snowstorm? Yeah, this this major uh, sea storm crashing, and he's sleeping. This is has to be supernatural. Amen. It has to be. And what's interesting is what the guy said. The captain comes down. I could imagine the captain or the, the sailor goes up, there's, there's someone sleeping down there. We found a body. <laughs> it's still breathing. Captain goes down there, and what happens? How is it that you are sleeping? Obviously, he woke him, woke him up to have this question. How is it that you're sleeping? And what he replies is unbelievable. get up, call on your God. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. (laughs) How many see the similarities? (laughs) I'm sure Jonah by now is thinking, I don't want to hear get up again. I've been going down for the whole time here. The cap, get up, call on your God. Cry out to your God. Up and cry out. Match exactly the first and last of the commands in God's commission to Jonah in chapter 1 verse 2. Jonah's attempt to escape this call and ignore God's revelation were futile. The hated commission haunted him. Even in the bowels of the ship hold. He hated it. He goes on, get up, call your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. In other words, here's what has happened. The sailors are saying, yeah, this ain't working to call on our gods. So we're going to do something. We're going to get rid of the ship's load. That ain't working either. What else can we do? In essence, you are seeing firsthand these men throwing away what they hold on to as dear. Because it ain't working. It isn't working. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. By the way, our God was concerned enough about us and sent his son so we would not perish. Do you see the similarities? This is why Jonah and Jesus are usually together as sign. And it talks about it in the New Testament. Verse 7, Each man said to his mate, Hey there, matey, we should do something else. (laughs) right (laughs) we got to do something different here this isn't working our gods have let us down the cargo is gone we have no money we have nothing it's all flung out what do we do now so they talk to each other as they confer with one another about casting lots interestingly verse 7 here echoes verse 5 Whereas verse 7 says, each one cried out to his God. Verse 5 said, we're done with that. Each one said to his shipmate, we got to do something. Having found the gods unresponsive, imagine that. The mariners turned to each other and to their collective wisdom regarding their survival. The text says, come, come indicates a sequence of a multiple... Let us cast lots so we can know and we we, we know what to do and whose fault this is in essence. Let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Isn't it interesting that even the unbelievers knew this something was supernatural about this? Do you see that? The first imperative is let's cast lots. It's a, it's a cohesive, a, a, a cooperative command here. The last command is so we can know. We can know who the problem is. That expresses the goal of casting lots. That we might know is a climatic command to highlight the mariner's desire to know the deity behind the fierce storm. They're going to do whatever they can to know what's going on and how to fix this and who's responsible. Now, this decision to cast lots was basically a last-ditch effort. Their cries to their God had proven ineffective. Jonah was not forthcoming with what he knew about their situation because he had withdrawn from his prophetic responsibilities. Men cried, and Jonah was not obeying God. They cried for help. We need help. We need to know who is doing this. And Jonah's sitting in the corner with his mouth shut. Let me ask you, is this world just like those mariners crying for help? Folks, if they think a girl is a guy, they're crying for help because they have no idea. They are crying for help. And what are we doing? Listen, this whole ship, they're crying to their gods. They're going to cast lots. They are doing everything they can. They're throwing out the the booty out of the ship. They're trying to, whatever we can do, we can do, but we're at odds. odds. What are we going to do now? And here's the one man that knows exactly what to do and he's saying nothing. Your neighbor needs help. Your coworker needs help. Your spouse needs help. Your children need help. We have the answer. but are we expressing it? Jonah didn't. Men were crying. These are, these are buff sailors. You don't understand what I'm saying. Rough, mean, big. And they're crying. And here's little Jonah. I don't know, for some reason, I think he's little. I think it's his character that maybe says that. But he wasn't obeying God. Therefore, lots were their only recourse. Lot casting, by the way, was the only form of divination permissible in Israel. Matter of fact, if you would go into Israel, <clears throat> Israel's literature, you will find that it actually took place in Israel. It was an Israel thing more than anything else. Matter, from what I understand, even in ancient Uh, uh, Near Eastern literature, you can't find Lot casting apart from Israel. It was an only Israel thing. How many get that? It's interesting because these guys are going to do something that's only Israeli and pretty soon Nineveh is going to do something that's only Israeli in repenting. Isn't that unique? It's because God is the God of all. But this this lot casting was a basic procedure. It included small stones or other objects marked in such a way as to represent individuals or commodities. The marked lot objects were then cast into a receptacle or a cup of some kind. The receptacle was then shaken until the one, marked, one of the marked lot objects fell out. Which thus indicate the divinely designed individual or item. In essence, it was a lot like Yahtzee. How many know what Yahtzee is? All those marks, and you shake it and then you pour it. And it, well, they didn't pour it; they just shook it. And the one that came out—that is the one. They also caught slots. Remember by sticks. You've seen that taken with the short stick or the long stick, whatever. Okay. These are the ideas of casting lots. So, matter of fact, okay, that's irrelevant. This is why you've got connections that are just, this is why this book is so unique and interesting. Lot casting, totally Israel. Repentance, totally Israel. Distinctively Israelite in character. And they are combining repentance and lot casting is expressing behavioral change. Fasting in particular was rare in Mesopotamia. And even when such a rite was observed, it had no association with repentance. But yet, we find that in Nineveh, they were fasting and sackcloth and ashes and totally humiliated. Totally repentant. This parallel between repentance and Mariner's lot casting suggests that as the repentance of the people of Nineveh is unexpectedly Israelite in character, so also is the lot casting. And the very one (laughs) that, 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 that this is what they do, Jonah, is absent. Just ironic here how, how mad at God and how angry at the commission Jonah is. It's quite interesting that God is drawing people to himself despite the foot dragging of his ambassadors. Do you notice that? As the storm gets heavier, they draw closer to God. And who does this guy do? He just sleeps. As they don't know what to do and he's got the answer, he just is like absent, not caring. Why is this happening? Having given up on their gods, they turned to an Israelite practice of lot casting, eventually leading to praying, sacrificing, and bowing to God by name. They actually ended up doing that. God replied to their belief and satisfied their desire for revelation. He exposed Jonah by lot as the reason for the storm. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. You think? Jonah was finally in a position where he was compelled to serve as God's instruments of revelation. In other words, God was trying him and trying him and trying him, judging him and judging him. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And we're like, what's wrong with you, Jonah? We should be saying, what's wrong with us? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But the lot fell on Jonah. He exposed, God did. God exposed Jonah by lot as the reason for the storm. The mariners instantly did what? Then they said to him, I mean, it's the lot fell on Jonah. Do you see that? There's a period and a number in the text. That's all. (laughs) Do you see that? Then immediately, right away. Okay, we know what's going on now. It's you. What is your problem? And here's what they say. They say to him, "Tell us now. On whose account was this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you?" Sounds like the government, doesn't it? I mean, all these questions immediately. What's going on, Bubba? 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 I mean, over and over again, asking these questions. It was a barrage. First, they asked Jonah to identify the person responsible for the disaster situation. On whose account this this disaster has befallen us. You see, lots, when they cast them, they revealed the human target of divine anger. The critical issue as to identify of the offended deity remained a question. In other words, Jonah, we know this is you. But who is your God? Because obviously, that's where we're at. Our gods aren't listening. Our practices aren't working. You have the lot, and it's your God. What is he doing? Why is he doing it? And what can we do about it? That's what he's asking. Jonah's response in verse 9 confirmed that it was the identity of the deity the mariners were after, not the human target. He said this, he said to them, I am the Hebrew and I feared the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Their question is identical in wording to the purpose clause in verse 7, thus again underscoring the mariner's persistent interest in the identity of the deity responsible. The book's original audience would likely have understood all five of the Mariner's questions related to the identity of the deity. Who is your God? Who is this guy that's doing this? Who is it? We know it's your fault. That's the lot. But we want to know what's important. Who is your God? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Do you see the similarity there? You say, well, Jonah didn't have any good works. No, but they knew who God was after the fact. And they knew Jonah did something wrong because they had told them, and we'll find that out shortly. They wanted to know who this God is. Jonah's occupation hometown country and race would all have been significant clues as to the particular deity responsible for the storm. Jonah's response answered the first question the last question first. He said, "I am Hebrew. That's who I am. I'm an Israelite. You know who I am now." And then he proceeds to talk about the most pressing question that they all wanted to know. Yes, I fear the God of heaven. I fear who made sea and dry land. On this revelation, the whole episode turns. He introduces God as the God of heaven. The God of heaven. Now, this is very similar to that of the Phoenician deity associated with the raging sea and especially feared by seafarers. The name is Baal Shahem. Lord of heaven, Jonah thus subtly corrected the Mariner's misplaced devotion by attributing to God what they would have normally attributed to Baal. How many understand that? No, I serve the real Lord of heaven. You see, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Your gods are dead. There is no such thing, actually. I serve the real one, the real Lord of heaven, Jonah proceeded with the relative clause who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah chose this distinctive wording, the sea and the dry land, because let me ask you, does this story all about sea and dry land? (laughs) Absolutely. And here he is writing about these things. Jonah chose them very succinctly because they are the environments to the story. The sea and the dry land are the regions where Jonah and God interact as their conflict unfolds. The story moves from dry land to sea, back to dry land, and finally to dry, to very dry land, right? To the desert. And God is active in all of those locations. When God and Jonah interact in the the most inhospitable environments of the sea and the desert, the tension between them is high. When they interact in the hospital environment of dry land, however, the tension seems to abate. The phrase reinforces the point that God does not immediately abandon those who are in conflict with Him. Listen, all of us, there's not a one person in here that doesn't need to grow. I will try that again. There is not a one person in here that doesn't need to grow in the Lord. Not one. And Jonah is very clear on this. I don't want to listen to God. So I'm going to go this way. So I'll send a storm. Well, I'm still going to not talk about God. So he makes... He makes the mariners literally repent and sacrifice to his God. I'm still not going to go. So he uses, and this is so interesting, oh my goodness, he uses the Gentile mariners to judge Jonah by flinging him overboard. And if you know the historical content of this, you're like, oh yeah, I get it. the phrase reinforces the point that God does not abandon those of His that He is in conflict with. He will passionately run after them. He will correct them. He will love them. He will discipline them and will judge them, but He will run after them. Listen, folks, you are not in a place where God cannot get He will always run after you no matter what you have done in the past. And He will always discipline you. Here's the issue. Well, I've not been disciplined. I must just be really good. If you haven't been disciplined, it's a good chance, I would say almost 100% chance, You are not one of his. Because God disciplines whom he loves. So it's not a if you're going to be disciplined, it's when you're going to be disciplined. But to think you're too good that God doesn't discipline, you're too good, all right. You're too good for heaven. There's no place for you because only submission to God reveals the heart of a true believer. For the Mariners, Jonah's description confirmed the suspicion that they were dealing with the cosmic deity of great power rather than some local fake God, (laughs) if you will. Furthermore, the designation God who would guide them all safely back to dry land in this way, the author foreshadows the outcome of the current crisis. What happened? Look at it says, so you want to know the deity that did this? It's him, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And immediately again, again, according to the text, immediately, then the men became extremely frightened. The term fear functions as a catchword. The men feared with a great fear. Jonah's claim. By the way, this look at the fear. So uh, Jonah. <laughs> How much did he really fear God? Oh, I'm sleeping in the boat. And you contrast this with guys pulling their hair out. Whatever they can do to save their lives. And Jonah's sleeping in the boat. The contrast is unbelievable. Jonah's claim is ironic that he says, I'm a fear of God. Yeah, right. You're not acting like it, you're running away from God. It's the same thing today. I'm a believer. Yeah, right. You ain't acting like it, you're doing exactly what God doesn't want. I can't know your heart, nor can anybody in this room know your heart. Whether saved or unsaved, that's between you and the Lord. We can't know your heart. But I will tell you this, if you're acting like an unbeliever, I'm going to treat you like an unsaved person. Because you need the gospel and you need Jesus. The contrast between the fear that the the prophet of God has and the the mariners of the world had is unbelievable. They're acting more Christian than he was. The author excessively modifies the verb and says they were extremely frightened to bring attention to that action. The contrast between Jonah's and the mariner's fears intensifies. What have you done We're out in the middle of nowhere. We are, can't even, this is horrible. We're going to die. What did you do to deserve this? And to kill us alongside, by the way, sin all has consequences outside the sinner. Every time. Every single time. You sin, it's going to affect your kids, affect your wife, affect your husband, affect the people around you. Every time. Oh, it's just a minor... No, that sin is a affront to God and it affects everybody around you negatively. Don't sin! What have you done? By the way, this, this, this phrase, this Hebrew phrase, what have you done, is used five other times, I believe. In scripture, and it's always talking about moral outrage at what the speaker perceives as foolish behavior. Why in the world would you run away from the cosmic sovereign God? Whoa. The mariners were shocked that Jonah would dare defy such a powerful cosmic deity and thus place the entire crew crew in mortal danger. Their question reflects a comprehension of general fear of God from which Jonah, in his rebellion, he can say feared he didn't fear. Jonah, what do you think would happen? Run away from God. Are you nuts? We all are nuts sometimes. Because we all run away from God and His commands. And then we find ourselves in trouble, and then we don't know what to do. Fall at His feet, total submission, humility. Get rid of the arrogance and pride. And that will only come by falling at the feet of Jesus. Only. Interestingly, the author follows the Mariner's question with two other clauses, explaining what prompted such a response. They said this, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, here's the deal. Why didn't we hear that before? that's why this book is so important this author is ugh. there's so much in this thing this author is keeping stuff away from our view how many understand that and he is purposely keeping stuff from our view why he doesn't want us to jump to conclusions by judging the motives of Jonah and we should never And I'm going to say it over and over and over again. Judging motives of somebody else's heart is sin. It's wrong. Because you can't know their heart. That's why putting all these, Jonah's this and Jonah's that. That's frivolous. And that's exactly what he's saying not to do. And yet we do it all the time. I'm better than that person. I'm more godly than this person. You know what? We're all sinners bound for hell and we all got a lot of problems. There's not a person in here who doesn't have problems. But you all have a God that solves those problems. The men knew he was fleeing because he fled from the presence. He said, he told him, he fled from the presence of God. verse 9 continues <clears throat> I'm sorry we're at verse 10 I'm going to am going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a guy that cuz some some of you think I'm just nuts thinking that we can't call Jonah this and that well listen to this author who has a commentary written totally in Hebrew knows what he's talking about. There is not a person in here that knows any Hebrew. The author's, he says it this way, the author's strategic use of information gaps. These gaps may create suspense or misdirect the reader to false impressions only to correct them later by additional information. How many understand what he just said? He's keeping these, this is why God is so awesome. He literally is keeping information out so that we do, we do (laughs) read somebody's heart supposedly. We judge his motives and we call him something and then he, (laughs) this is what he does. Well, here's what I was doing. It's like, oh, that's not what I thought. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. He's using this so we stop judging motives. Because we can't. And yet, I'm telling you, preacher after preacher, commentator after commentator, he's this, he's that, he's that. What does the text say? Don't go off on your own tangent. It continues and we're almost done here. Then the men became extremely frightened. How could you do this? We know because you told us that you were fleeing from the Lord. Then he said to them, then they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea has become increasingly stormy. What must we do with you so that the sea might settle down for us? Well, may <clears throat> me ask you, could Jonah have repented and the sea calmed? Yes or no? Jonah had jumped into the sea himself. Said, I'll take care of it for you. I'll jump in. Could he have done that? He didn't do either one of them. Why? There is a lot we can go into this. But the reality is. What did Jonah say? And this is just a preview of next week, but he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. In essence, Was he saying, kill me so that all of you may live? Yes or no? He's absolutely saying that. Jonah is literally saying, sacrifice me at the altar of the Mediterranean Sea for your lives. That's exactly what he's saying. But the question is still there, and we have to struggle with it. Why didn't he just repent? Why did he have them throw him overboard? Are these pertinent questions? Absolutely. The sea was raging and relentless. Well, we'll go ahead just for a second, but we're not, we are going to be finished here shortly. But I just want to show you what happens, and then we'll. Preach on it next week. However, did these sailors listen to Him? They didn't. They know that He's responsible. They know His God is unbelievable. And they know He's responsible for the storm. And the the prophet himself just, lift me up and throw me over no we're not going to do that look what it says however or but instead of or we're not listening to you the men row desperately to return to land let me ask you did these men want to kill god's prophet yes or no no Not at all. They wanted nothing to do with that. But the question is, why did Jonah even ask him to do that? When he could have, he's got two feet. He can jump. He could just go over and let the waves break him probably. Considering what kind of storm this was. For the sea was becoming even more stormier against them. So they didn't listen to the prophet. And then what happened? It got worse. It got worse. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. I love this about the men. We're going to preach on this next week, but I love this. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. They offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows and the Lord appointed a great ship, fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Let me ask you, does this text tell us Jonah died or not died? It doesn't tell us what happened. We will discuss this next week. We'll preach on Death or not, because there are really good really good theologians that believe that Jonah died, and that that's the sign of Christ. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, yes, just like Jonah, just like Jesus. Um, but we're gonna well, you're gonna read Jonah's um, account and see his humility and see his I am so out of step here in chapter 2. But the reality is, Jonah was written way before Jesus Christ ever stepped on this earth. Amen? Almost, well, approximately 800 years. And it is foreshadowing The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's not a big deal to you, you better check your pulse. Because that's a big deal. And if he is particularly foreshadowing Christ, doesn't every word matter? I'm telling you, this book, how many say, man, this book has a lot more than I ever thought it, even closely had? It's because we're studying it and serious about it. Not just a story we read on Saturday night to teach Sunday morning. God's Word's more important than that. All right. I think the principles are very clear. I think that we have expressed them over and over God, if you're truly a believer, God will passionately strive after you to fix you. No matter what you have done. He will judge you. He will even use unsaved to judge you to bring you back to him. He will bring a storm to bring you back to him. He will bring a fish to bring you back to him. Now I got to see that, but he does. He will passionately, mercifully go after you if you're a true child of His. So the question really is, am I a child of His? How many times has God got got after you, disciplined you, judged you, corrected you, set you back on your feet? Or are you just living a life like everybody else and there's nothing out there? Folks, examine your heart. Are you truly a child of His? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Lord, as in he's in charge throughout my life. Savior, as he mercifully saved me from my sin and hell. And yet, I act just like the wicked Jonah. We do. I have said it once, I will say it often, I will say it more and more and more. Stop looking down your nose at Jonah and realize we are just like him. Mr. Gaiman, can you close us a word of prayer, please? Please stand, I'll pray, and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you that... Uh, This is not just a story. These are words of life. They're words that give us direction. They're words that give us comfort and hope, and they convict us and make us understand more of you and should direct us to be more committed to your word and to living obedient lives. In Jesus' name, amen.